Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 422, featuring Sean Looper, the CTO of Crafty Apes. Uh, it was absolutely wonderful catching up with Sean. Uh, I've actually known him for a long, long time. Uh, believe it or not, he interviewed for a job as a head of technology over at Sway many, many, many moons ago. Uh, he didn't end up taking that job, but we still remain friends, which was kind of awesome and wonderful. Very bright guy, very charismatic person has an incredible background, which, of course, you get to hear all about on this podcast, including how he moved to Beverly Hills, of all places, for his first job in L.A. Uh, really cool. Uh, we also talk about, you know, uh, his first nerd crush being Bill Spitzak, which is really funny. Uh, some old stories of us uh, in a car cruising around downtown Los Angeles with Paul DeBevick after her cigarette, which was also hilarious. Uh, and a lot of these obviously talk a lot about his role over at Crafty Apes, uh, where uh, he has been developed he's you know started recently as the cto and he's uh building up uh, some interesting ideas of where technology is going to go from now on uh and he's got a really great knowledge especially in uh his stuff on the cloud as well as some of his ambitions in ai so really exciting to talk about to to sean about that stuff and can't wait to see what he ends up building in the in the future. All right, we have a few announcements right now. Uh, you guys know already. I've mentioned this several times at Vray six uh, uh, point one update one for three uh, DS Max is out and it's coming for all the other products very soon. So before you start asking about that, uh, we do have a special happening right now. So if you want to save on uh, the new Vray and Phoenix uh, annual commercial licenses. Just use the code APRIL20 for 20% off at checkout. So again, that's APRIL20, all caps for the APRIL. I don't know if that's important, but might as well say it uh, for a 20% discount. Uh, and that is valid through uh, April 25th. So make sure and do that. It's coming up real soon. Uh, and a couple of events I want to let you know about. These are all available at chaos.com slash events. Uh, we are currently right now uh, at NAB. So go check us out at NAB. We are at the AMD booth. We've got several things going on there. Uh, a few demos. It'd be cool to see you there. So uh, if you're at NAB in Las Vegas, go ahead and stop by our booth. Uh, we are also going to be at FMX, uh, but on April 24th through 26th. And that's, of course, is in Stuttgart, Germany, as it is every year. So uh, if you're in at FMX, we'd love to see you there. Uh, okay. If you want to know more about the podcast, you can go to facebook.com slash CG Garage. You can always go to our website directly. That is chaos.com slash CG Garage. If you like to watch these videos, which is a lot of fun, they become very popular. We upload them on our channel. Uh, and that's uh, youtube.com slash TV. So make sure and check us out there and subscribe to us there. Uh, if you have ideas, questions, or comments on the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is labs at chaos.com. But for now, please enjoy episode number 422 with Sean Looper from Crafty Apes. Welcome to another CG Garage where the Chaos Group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. Sean, it's awesome to see you. Uh, I think... The maybe the first time we actually met was uh, you were interviewing at Sway. Is that is that yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that would have been. Uh, oh my gosh, 
It's funny because I, re I remember a date by shows. So that would have been right before Green Lantern, I believe. Uh, no, that was even before that. Yeah, this was probably going back to 2010, 2009. Yes, that's about right. Yeah. To, no, yeah. no, no, no. It was earlier than that because uh, it would have been 2008. Oh, right. Because I went to ride yeah. it instead of Sway. That's what happened. Oh, my God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my friend. It's been a, it's been a while. It's been funny. And then I... I Go ahead. I still tell the story of, of that, that fateful SIGGRAPH where it was you, me, and, and Debevic, <laughs> like, cruising around SIGGRAPH and, like, cruising to parties and watching Paul with his mad, like, dating game because he was single at that point in time and he was really, really eager to, like, meet people. Right. And I was just, you know, enamored because I think between Paul and Larry Gritz, they were, like, my two nerd crushes from you know back in the 90s and i was like oh my gosh i'm hanging out with paul debevic this is amazing <laughs> anyway. i remember you we yeah we we met up at some party and and we were it was just a massive party it was a what party it was the massive that's party. what it was it was a massive party and paul was like yep. hey let's go to the next party and i was like all right yeah, he was who's driving were you driving was... i think <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> no no it was it was either you or him right. it was some nice uh you know, some Beamer, I don't know, or some, some really nice car. And I was like, man, I'm like, this is where I want to be. These, these guys are on top of the world right now. This is great. It's funny. It reminded me of this, this, this hilarious story I heard from a friend of mine who I work with. He was a dead man. He's retired now, but he used to work with, um, he used to work with, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, head of Apple, uh, uh, uh Steve Jobs. <laughs> Right. Oh, yeah. so he was in the car with Steve Jobs and they were going to a meeting and Steve apparently was just had a breakup and he was very depressed in the car. Yeah. And uh, this guy said, I was like, don't, don't worry, Steve. I mean, you're Steve Jobs. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you'll find someone else. And looked at him and says, are you sure, John? You think so, John? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's kind of, you know, it's funny. It's like, uh, they're, we're all human, you know. I mean, obviously mm -hmm. that's cliche, but uh, you know, it's 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 funny how uh, you know thinking thinking about my my heroes and nerd crushes in the industry, you know, that I've that I've subsequently met um, and worked with, you know, it's uh, it's been pretty awesome to go from seeing them from the outside when I was young, and you know, uh, just looking at the industry with with you know wide eyed and in awe. And and then getting through to the point where you know I'm on a first name basis with them and or or have have led their you know I've been their boss or their manager or their supervisor you know what I mean like yeah. it, it's um but also getting to know them you know at a personal level know their pets know their families like be friends and it's uh it's really I don't know it's it's a cool thing I guess it's you know one of the takeaways of getting older and established in a career is yeah is you you, you kind of get to transition from that um infatuation phase to like a more mature you know deeper relationship with people uh over time it's good it's really good absolutely i can 100 agree with that uh who's i mean like my one of my biggest nerd crushes who i haven't met yet is john carmack <laughs> like that yes I, I i don't think i've met john yet either um it's funny so i meant i mentioned i mentioned uh paul, paul and larry <laughs> And Larry, of course, uh, if he's if he's watching, you know, Larry's Larry's probably shaking his head and blushing. Um, n no, but like definitely in my top three, right up there was is Bill Spitzak. 
Oh, Bill, and, really? Yeah, yeah. He's so <laughs> funny. It it is funny because um, you know, Bill and I met. I like to say I've met, that Bill's met me many times for okay. the first time. For the first time, like like Bill. Bill, I, I clearly never made a, a, a lasting impression on Bill right. in the first like 10 years that I knew Bill because I would repeatedly meet Bill and, and I'm like, hey, Bill. And he's, he'd say, oh, hi, I'm Bill. You know, and I'm like, oh, OK, well, I'm Sean. Hi. You know, good to meet right. you. Um, but uh, yeah, I remember, uh, you know, I remember when D2 software was launched at a digital domain and they released the first version of Nuke. and. Yep. The, the small shop I was working for, we, we, we were one of the first customers. And I remember, you know, I'm, I'm trying to Which write. Which shop new... was that? Was it Digital Dimension? Oh, no, it was before Digital Dimension. This oh, was wow. like some little advertising auto stereo um, uh, company in Beverly Hills uh, of all places. And it was my very first job moving to Los Angeles. And um, they were doing all this After Effects work uh, for converting eight camera renders and, and, and live camera streams, you know, like, like captured principal photography into uh, auto stereo glasses free, you know, similar to lenticular technology. And, um, and so I came in and I'm like, look, you guys, we've got, we've got eight video streams. We've got RGBA. That's 32 channels. Nuke perfectly fits that because the first versions of Nuke only supported 32 color channels. Mm -hmm. And so I pushed them. I'm like, let's, let's do it. This would be amazing. And I, you know, again, young and, and, uh, bright eyed about any, any new exciting tech. And, uh, and so we got it and, uh, I wanted to, I was trying to write all these plugins to, to work with all these auto stereo content. And I had this, you know, I ended up executing on, but at the time I had this plan to basically build a flame bay for, for, uh, auto dialing in three dimensional stereo comps or auto stereo comps, um, with eight streams and all of that stuff and our, our proprietary TVs. And uh, in order to get access to the NDK, to the API, you had to sign an NDA mm -hmm. and, because it was like so new and, you know, full of proprietary tech. And so, you know, I was excited. It was like my first NDA that I ever got to sign. I'm like, oh, man, I've made it. I've made it in Hollywood. This is amazing. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember I'm like teaching myself C++ at the time and I'm, I'm writing just some basic color correction plugins and. I got stuck. And so I'm like, okay, I'll call support. So I call support and I, I don't remember who it was. I first talked to, but within like 30 seconds, they're like, oh, okay, hold on one second. And they put Bill Spitzak on the phone. <laughs> and I, I had known, I had met Bill twice before for the first time, of course, uh, each time. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, like he was already on my nerd crush list. You know, right. I'm like, I'm talking to Bill Spitzak right now about nuke. And I was totally geeking out. Anyway, so fast forward however many years, um, and I probably had, like I said, met Bill for the first time three or four more times after that. Um, I'm at DreamWorks Animation, and, and I, had, I had spent a couple years working on um, a, a whole pipeline studio in a box initiative that they had as part of their Oriental DreamWorks kind of how can we spin up a studio anywhere in, in, the, in the world um, effort uh, that they were real big on at the time. And... Um, that uh, right around the time that was right around the time that NBC Universal bought DreamWorks, and so uh, after about two years, they disbanded that unit. NBC Universal didn't seem to have any interest in Oriental DreamWorks, and so they just disconnected that whole relationship, divested, etc. And 
I I had the great opportunity to move into uh, DreamWorks Animation R and D like proper, um, which was awesome. Like I got dropped dropped right into the, what at the time was their Torch team, and you know they had inherited a number of people or hired a number of people from you know who were formerly at Rhythm and Hughes who'd worked on uh, Crom which was, as best as I understood, was, was Bill Spitzak's baby. And so Bill had gotten hired to work on Torch. And so I, got, I kind of got airdropped into this team. Um, and within, I don't know, three months, there was this just massive shift away from Torch um, and, and all the proprietary lighting tools into Katana. And I had been on the Katana team at Imageworks for... Uh, for about three years, you know, mostly working on Nuke at the beginning, but this was around the time that Foundry and ImageWorks had had developed their relationship, and um, and so we were working on the commercial. You know, collectively we were working on the the, the first commercial version of Katana, and so um, I had all this Katana knowledge, and and they said, well, we want we want to pivot towards that, and so you know, within three months they had made me the tech lead of the whole team okay and that you know that included bill spitzak and right. uh, and it was just uh it was just amazing because i remember um you know, i remember you know bill bill's very idiot bill's amazing but but he's quirky and so you have to work yes. with bill in a certain way and uh -huh. um and so i you know i remember just feeling like in awe of the fact that i got to work with bill but at the same time recognizing that Bill was going to do whatever Bill was going to do. And, and so it was a really great, I, I actually use it as an example, like a leadership example, you know, when they ask you in interviews, like, tell me about a time where you had somebody who you had to treat differently than everyone else or whatever. Um, but it really forced me to think, because I, I mean, I was coming into the situation with just so much respect for Bill um, that I, all I wanted to do was see him be successful. And and so it really forced me to think creatively about how to take someone that's that brilliant, um, that accomplished, and 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 had and wants to and should be setting their own direction, and still line them up with what we actually needed to accomplish as a team. And um, it, it was it was a really great learning experience for me. And then of course you know I geeked out for the entire time I worked there, um, just you know just being able to 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 say you know. I, I, I work with Bill and, you know, I, I always give, Did you work with Hextap as well? Oh yes. Yes. So Jonathan and I worked together. So he was, he was heading up most of the nuke development. Um, yeah. but we both were, uh, you know, DreamWorks had this, uh, steering committee for USD adoption. And so we were in the process of adopting USD and it was primarily being driven from a, a requirements perspective by production. Um, but, you know the engineering the, the the engineering chops that were necessary and it were, were were for usd both now and at the time were were relatively high so we were involved from r and d to i think provide that kind of um uh more sage wisdom from an r and d perspective and then of course Jonathan and i by that point in time certainly for me were long in the tooth and senior in the industry so um, all that to say, uh, he and I worked pretty closely on that and we, we, we became good friends. Um, and, and so between him and, and, uh, and Bill, it was, it was pretty awesome just to work in that environment. Um, but I, I used to give Bill a hard time cause he, 
both he and Jonathan, I think, won their second Academy Award mm-hmm. uh, for Nuke while while we were all working together. And so I would always introduce Bill as two-time Academy Award winning Bill Spitzak, which of course would embarrass him immensely. And yep. Um, yep. It, it just kind of became a running a running thing. Um, yeah. But anyway, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Yeah. I love I love the fact that it was driven. I that I think that 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 Paul was actually my first sort of like. Uh, like nerd crush that I met in person. Yeah. I actually met him at uh, at uh, DD during the uh, uh, Martini nights when they had him way back in the day. Yes, and uh, you know he was one of the people that sort of really inspired me in terms of lighting, right? Because I saw the stuff he did uh, first on the Campanile project and then on Fiat Lux. I think Fiat Lux is the one that was like, whatever the hell this man's doing. It's yes. magic, and I want to do that, right? Totally. And it, it really felt that that period of time. I mean, the the HDR shop early days, and yep. that that the the early days of HDR in general, mm-hmm. um, and and seeing the advent of just light probes and uh, and high dynamic range capture, all of that feels like what we're seeing right now with ML in a way. Like to me, back okay, then in the nineties, it was it was that, I, and I'm agreeing with you. It it really felt like magic. Right. Like how, how is this possible? Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. It, it felt like you were bringing reality into, yeah. in, into the yeah. image. Right. And it was about like, Oh my God. You know, like, and then just hearing it from Paul was really cool. And he was also to me, what was impressive about him was that he was, um, he was so good at talking about technology. <laughs> like he was a, great yes. presenter right he's and a he, great presenter yeah and he can talk about technology that anyone can understand it like you know your average new york times reader could understand what paul's talking about yep. uh and he was just so so good so i i was very inspired by that and when i talked to him and i don't know anyone who's met paul debevic in a past note he's is unbelievably polite in the most uh, nicest, nicest way that he is just yes. a true, true gentleman. So when you meet him and he talks to you, he's always going to treat you with such respect that you feel like yes. even more humbled by talking to him. Yes. Know? Yes. No, absolutely. I, 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 like I said, I, I think it's one of the, I mean, early on, uh, because you, you and I both came out of architecture, if I oh, recall. Oh, that's right. Okay. Let's, do, yeah. let's take that journey back. We've gone way back. Like, let's go a little back further back. You came out of architecture as well. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I went to Arizona State, and I was in their architecture program there. And back then, um, I mean, I was going to be an architect. I was working on a lot of high-end homes. I was using FormZ and ArchiCAD uh, wow. and AutoCAD and 3ds Max. And, you know, that, that really paved the way for me to get into, you know, photorealistic rendering. Sure. Um, and and so, I mean, back then, I was, I was using V-Ray. I was using you know, final render, I was using, you know, what at render man, if I could, and BMRT was, mm-hmm. was, uh, was in the mix. And it was really just trying to get any tech we could to drive, like push that boundary of, of looking, having our renders look more photorealistic than the next architecture firm, you know, because that's, that's what it was about. Like, how could you paint pictures of what a building was going to look like in an experience inside of a building right. um, that, that could motivate people emotionally and tell a story. Um, but it, but it, 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 you know, gosh, everything was about like, not everything, but there was so much of a, a sensitivity to faking it versus simulating it, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
And because back then it was all about faking it. Like it, you just didn't have the compute power or the technology to simulate it. You had, obviously we had mental ray, you know, which worked to a point. Um, but everything else was just a hack. And, uh, and I'm, I'm even like, we used to use, um, we used to do radiosity uh, solutions with, uh, was it Lightscape? Lightscape. Yeah. 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 Which was great for architecture it because it, <laughs> it took forever. Um, but, but it was all, it was all vertex based, you yep. know, lighting information and, uh, which was great for architecture because nothing moved, right. uh, you know, generally speaking. Um, so anyway, so it, it really, it really kind of seeded in me, a deep love for rendering, you know, just the, 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 all things related to that technology in that space, yeah. um, which, you know, I, I've, gone through all sorts of avenues in my career in this industry, you know, through pipeline and, and various aspects of R and D and tech. Um, but you know, I, I still get excited when I see pretty pictures, you know, that, that a computer's made and I want to know, I, I want to get into it. How did that, how, how did it do that? What's, you know, what was the process? What was the underlying tech? You know, right. it's, I still geek out over it. So, and, and I, I don't think a lot of people, well, I like to think that a lot of people can't say that about whatever it is that got them into the industry that they belong into, that they still have some aspect of it that gets them excited, you know, and, and, and jazz, you know, I, I feel, I feel blessed to have that, you know, this many years later. Absolutely. I think it's funny because you're like one of the, like a lot, of, I have a lot of people on this podcast, as you know, and they're always like, you know, not always, but a lot of people are like, you know, Jurassic Park, Star Wars, those are the things that inspired me to get into the industry. And I yeah. love those movies and I had a great time. But honestly speaking, it was a little bit of the geek level that got to me. And yeah. when I saw stuff, stuff like, you know, I saw stuff like The Abyss and I saw things like that that were into it, right? And then totally. having met Spaz, Spaz was another one, right? I met Spaz yes. Williams and I like got to hang out with him and he is a crazy mofo, man. That guy is insane. <laughs> but uh, but having met him and I was like, this is the guy that started it all in a lot of ways, yeah. right? And then also talking to Paul and everything else, I think those are the things that were really kind of kind of incredible to me. So Absolutely agree with you. Okay, so yeah. so let's let, you got you were doing architecture. What what was the jump into into uh, media and entertainment? Yeah, uh, it, it was. Yeah, so it was funny. It, it, you know, my my wife and I, uh, I I was still in architecture, and there were a, a couple studios in uh, architectural, purely architectural rendering and animation studios in in Phoenix. Um, where I was born and raised, and 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 so I was, um, I was kind of scratching that itch. Right? I was, I was, I was still doing computer graphics, but it was in my hometown and still in architecture. Um, and and I'd I'd already made the decision that I wasn't going to be an architect anymore. Like I was just, you know, I was so caught up in it. I switched my degree to animation, and you know, from architecture about three years in, and I was like, this is what I want to do. Um, but, you know, I needed a job and, and my skills were architecture, intersecting architecture with rendering. So, so anyway, um, and so my wife and I had bought our very first house in Phoenix and, you know, the little studio I was working for, um, I'd been there maybe a year and they, they, they hit, you know, economic troubles. Sure. And, and so they let me go. And, uh, and it was really emotional. It was a really hard, first time I'd ever been, uh, no, it wasn't the first time, but it, it, 
first time it really hurt because I was like, I just bought a house, you know, and, and wow, they, yeah. they were so apologetic. They were, you know, it, it was, it was brutal. And, um, and, and then right around that same time, my wife lost her job, like within two weeks of me losing my job. Okay. And, and all, all of that matters because, you know, here we are completely unemployed first house payment, you know, right around the corner. And so I was desperate. And so I, I, I was calling around and I got a phone interview with that same auto stereo group in Beverly Hills. And they said, it was, and I had the phone interview on a Friday. They said, can you be out here on Monday? I said, yeah. So I packed a suitcase, you know, looked up the closest relative that I had in Los Angeles, which was in Irvine. Wow. And I'm looking on a map. I'm looking at a map from Irvine to Beverly Hills. I'm like, well, that's not that far. Oh, no. Like, it's really far. <laughs> it's really far. It's so far. And so for like three months, I worked at this gig and I was commuting. I was probably spending about three to four hours a day on the road. Yeah. You know, which, which made it to where I just didn't, I was working 12 hour days because it just made sense for me to keep working right. and drive home at like 10 o'clock at night because I, you know. Otherwise, I'd be spending another hour in traffic. And so, you know, it, it actually worked to my advantage because they thought I kicked ass. I mean, they were like, you're, you're amazing. How, you know, and so it was kind of a temporary gig. And then almost, you know, immediately, especially once they understood my situation, they're like, you know, we're going to make you staff. And, you know, within another year, here I was like, like, I think it was like director of technology. But, you know, essentially I was an artist slash DD. Um, you know, and by auto stereo, you're not talking about automobile stuff. stereo, right? No, this was <laughs> no, no. That would have been an amazing story if I if I actually drove across country to get a job for a, a company that did auto stereo. Um, no, no, no. So, uh, yeah, for for the the uninitiated, the the um, I don't know if it was a phase or what. It really this was all before Polar Express when everyone was all enamored with 3D, right? And 3D itself was like this niche almost like VR um, area that was primarily being technology. It was technology being used for advertising almost sure. exclusively. And so there was this, this company out of Germany that manufactured these, um, these TVs, they're, they're flat screen TVs. They were at the time. And um, you know, if, if it's, it's fascinating technology, if you ever are interested in going deeply into this, it's, it's called barrier parallax um, technology. And it's, if you're familiar with how lenticular works. Okay, where, I was going to ask if it was lenticular, yeah. Yeah, it's very similar. So lenticular, and a lot of my, my data on this is, is old, but I'm trying to describe it. I'll, I'll describe it how I think Paul DeBevick would describe it. <laughs> so it, it, it's like if you imagine these just lenticular vertical strips that go from the top of the screen to the bottom of the screen right. that are aligned with a pixel, right. and each of them is a prism. So as you look through, as you're... As you're your view angle changes. You're actually looking at a different um, pixel behind that that right. that filter, right? So that's more or less how it lenticular works. Special refraction angles. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, barrier parallax does that at the subpixel level. Oh, and so if you go if you go and if you look really close onto pretty much any screen now nowadays, you'll see a little red for every pixel. You'll see a little red strip, a blue strip. Or a red strip, a green strip, and a blue strip. Right. And and together they make a square, and that is the pixel. Right. So this company made these screens that would, where each of those little prisms was was at the same size as one of these little color strips. Wow. And the way that it was set up is, at, for a given angle, 
like my right eye looking at a particular pixel, mm -hmm. it would actually take the red component from an adjacent pixel, the green component from the current pixel, and a blue component from one or two pixels over. And so the the way like it had a special encoding for the imagery, right? Um, and it was brilliant because it allowed for this really smooth, almost anti-aliased type transition from 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 view to view to view, because right. it was happening at the color component level, not at the pixel level, where you see all sorts of jaggies and 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 so forth. Um, so anyway, I still I I'm actually still kind of a geek about that tech because it was really neat, like yeah. what they did at the time. But they needed somebody to make content for it. Okay. So someone in the company, someone in New York or wherever they had an office was like, I'm going to fly to LA and we're going to, I'm going to hire a bunch of animators and we're going to make all this CG content for these special screens. And this guy thought, well, where do they make movies? Beverly Hills. So he rented <laughs> some like, so he rented some office at like a, in like a high rise in Beverly Hills. And, and it was funny because we'd hire animators and artists from around the industry and they're like what are you guys doing in beverly hills like there's nobody in beverly hills that people live there like but no one there's right. no animation studio there right right yeah so anyway i do think it was kind of funny that like one of the i think the first um, he was german though right yeah yeah no he he was not he was not but he, he definitely he was from new york okay but either way he had he probably had as much knowledge of los angeles as, as uh, someone from germany might <laughs> um but anyway so uh all that to say, that was really my like first foray out of architecture. Sure. And after after a few years of that, um, Digital Dimension reached out to me, and um, and I and I I got the job there as a VFX artist. You know, I, I um, and really that was my first like VFX job. entry into the industry. Yeah. And um, what did you work on I, over there? So my first film was Zathura. Um, which nice. was that Jumanji sequel. Yeah. And um, that was a lot of fun because most everything that I was doing was um, exploding, basically CG explosions off of the over overlaid over the miniature that they shot with. So Favreau directed that yep. film. And, and at the time he was very big on, on uh, this was right after Elf and he was very big on in camera. And so, you know, this movie was all about this, this house that's flying through space with these, these two kids in it and um and the house just gets obliterated over time you know mm -hmm. throughout the I'm, i don't mean to spoil it for your viewers but if <laughs> you haven't seen it at this point i feel feel like we're okay yeah um but over the course of the movie just chunks of this house are being blown off into space and by the end of the movie these poor kids are like sitting on a on a couch on like what's left of like the center of their living room and they're just exposed into space and of course it you know, defies reality in, in physics, but that's kind of the point. So anyway, um, so we were doing a lot of, hey, we need to make sure that this all looks like it was done in camera because all the explosions, and, and they did a lot of blowing, doing um, practical pyrotechnics mm -hmm. off of these miniatures that we were supposedly going to use, and we threw all of it away. Um, and so it was it was amazing because I was I was. You know, I was a 3D Studio Max artist mainly, uh, and and so I was using that with thinking particles uh, primarily at the time to do all this like explosive work that I'd never really done before. And so I'm learning on the job, and it was it was super exciting. I mean, I, I still remember uh, shots that I worked on there, and and just blowing stuff up in the computer was was a lot of fun. But um, anyway, so that and uh, 
Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and we had an IMAX movie. And um, is that where you met Molly? Uh, yes. So Molly <laughs> Pavian, yes, yeah. where I met a lot of people. Uh, yeah, M- Molly Pavian, uh, who who, and we haven't talked about this yet, but uh, you know, I I am the currently the CTO at Crafty Apes yep. Visual Effects, yep. and um, Molly was. I, I think she was a coordinator or a, or a PA, but, but point being, she was new to the company and relatively new to the industry. And, uh, uh, she was awesome. Like, and like, I remember like she used to house sit for us because we had dogs and we'd go on vacation or something and, wow. and she, she dog sit and, um, and, and funny little bit of trivia, Molly and I have the exact same birthday, uh, many years apart, right. but the exact same birthday. And, um, Anyway, so we you know we kind of lost touch over the years, um, and uh, I, I actually didn't know that she worked at Crafty Ape. So she's a she's a head the head of studio for LA of, I know she was on the podcast. So people who that's are listening, right, to this, that's right. People so listening to this will know that she we should, come, know a couple episodes Molly. ago we did Molly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, it, it's it's uh it's a for me again it's it's like a great story of uh, of of you know how small the industry is and mm-hmm. and watching people start you know, essentially at the bottom and myself included yeah. and, you know, sticking it out and, and working hard and, you know, not being a jerk. Uh, and you know, or at least most of the time not being a jerk, I guess. I, I don't know if, I don't know if I can say I've never been a jerk, but, um, but, but, you know, I, I, I think it's, uh, I don't know. It's neat to see. It's neat to see people succeed, uh, especially good people succeed in this business. For sure. For sure. For sure. Well, I do remember, I mean, it was about 2000 and 2008, I think, or seven or eight is that you actually interviewed over uh, at Sway. Right. And it was interesting about that. This is a kind of a cool thing. Like you interviewed, you and I hit along great. You got, yeah. well, you and I got along great. We were like, totally like, oh, this is going to be great. Yeah. And then for some reason, I'm not going to get into it, but you decided to go to ride instead yeah. of sway which is yes fine um, yeah. but we and I stay good friends yes <laughs> that process yes. which is awesome no, it, it was great i i actually remember um uh, i i remember between you and i the the main positives because you know it was it was it was actually a struggle because i had i had an offer from sway i had an offer from riot not to brag i'm just the, the reason why yeah, it was a brag. struggle because it was right. it was relatively early in my career as well i mean I, I only had digital dimension under my belt at that point yeah and I, and i and i also had an offer from pixamondo at the time oh and and to me all three of those were like this is this is amazing but to have three offers at the same time yeah. it was it was pretty um amazing um but but in kind of uh i don't know if it's like six ways to kevin bacon or how how whatever the the, the analogy is um the fact that I went to Riot um, paved the way for so much. Of course, that's that's kind of how life works. But um, the the office that I shared, like the office that I landed in when I started at Riot, you know, was was shared with three other compositors, and one of those compositors was Chris Ledoux. Well, right. Chris Ledoux and I hit it off really well, and and you know, I, I met his circle of of friends many of which uh chris is from alaska and and so he was kind of the you know um the importer of all alaskan art art talent uh for the industry you know him and ben is Gress there a lot of our talent up in alaska that comes down to- that, I, I i don't know but whatever whatever that is as a talent pool i'm pretty sure uh 
the, the Ledoux's and the Grossman's are, are tied. I in was going to say Ben Grossman as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so Ben, Ben was part of that circle at the time right. um, because cafe group was also in Santa Monica. Yes. And, um, and so that's how I met a bunch of those guys. And so anyway, after, um, you know, things with riot, this, we were all part of this riot features group that had, you know, this was like the second incarnation of, or attempt at, at having a feature film group at Riot, which was primarily a finishing facility for commercials. Yep. And, um, and so, you know, after a few years of trying to get that going, it, it ultimately um, got shut down, not, not mostly for internal politics reasons, um, not, not so much because of lack of performance. But regardless, um, I went off to, I think I ended up at Motion Theory slash Murata and then Imageworks. Um, but Chris, went and started Crafty Eight yep. after like a little stint at Scanline. And so, you know, fast forward, this was been 2009. So fast forward something like 14 years. Um, Chris reaches out to me last year. You know, I, 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 I went, um, spent the, you know, roughly four years at AWS, primarily working on visual effects and animation related like cloud technology. Mm -hmm. And uh, he hits me up, says, you know, Hey, you want to come be our CTO at Crafty Eight? And, um, and the only reason I entertained it, the main reason I entertained it was because I knew Chris and I trusted him and, and, you know, we went back to what, you know, the good old days. Um, and, uh, and, and so all that to say, like, it, it's, it's, a, to me, it's a lesson. You know, I, have, I have a niece, she's 19, she's in college and, you know, and so I, I, I force her to, to, to receive my unsolicited wisdom, you know, from time to time. And. And one of them is, is like, you know, you really need to treat everybody like, like they will be around and that you will want to work with them and that your reputation with them matters, even at a young age, because you never really know, you never really know, you know, what, what the people that, that you work with now are, what they're going to do with their lives and, and how that, how that might come back, you know, to be a part of yours and influence yours. So, um, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that I've learned from this podcast is when I hear everyone's origin story that they, there is so many humble beginnings, right? Yeah. You know, and it should look like, uh, you know, someone, uh, you know, a Brian Grill, for example, right? Who was on the scan yeah. line, you know, it's been nominated for Oscars a couple times and, you know, he started off changing light bulbs, right? Right. So, uh, that's, that's a thing, right? So always remember, uh, remember those things and, and, uh, the incredible people that, that are around and, you know, Molly is a, another example, right? You knew, you knew her in the early days and now she's yeah. heading up the studio and she's, you know, kind of like managing people like you. Right. So, and yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I don't know. I, again, I think it's one of the things that I love. Yeah. Maybe it's like adjacency bias or some sort of bias because it's the industry that I've spent my whole life in. But, you know, I, I, even, even with my foray into, into big tech, um, I just feel like there's a soul in this industry. You know, there, there's a collective, uh, I don't know, culture in this industry that, that to some degree bonds us all together, that, that isn't based on, you know, greed or ambition, but is, is, a, you know, call it a love for filmmaking or, or, or just a, a love for, for art and tech and the intersection of that and the problem solving. And, you know, I, I think it's also very pragmatic. 
Sure. You know, it's 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 like it's like a what's the word? It's like a self-optimizing industry in that in that only the only the things that really are useful and good survive it. You know, if a if a tech isn't 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 useful, it's gone. If a if a person isn't cutting it, you know, they they have to adapt or they're gone. And and there's something there's this there's, there's like a lot of energy I feel about about knowing that like the 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 people that are around have have earned it you know right. in a way they 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 really have earned it and i and i i think that there's like a base level of respect you know almost in in studios to say look if you're here that that you're here for a reason and that that i think that that's i don't know that's like an exciting feeling um that 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 i've always i keep coming back to about this industry um i don't know I think it's very cool that you find it so personal, especially in, in the area of technology. And we're going to get to the evolution of that. And I definitely want to get to ML and what you're thinking about there. But let's talk about technology. Let's let's start with sure. technology. You talked, you know, you're mentioning your passion for technology. You mentioned in very great, interesting detail the the the, the, the special TVs that were being developed. How how is that? How is technology sort of uh, one started your interest in what we're doing, and how have you seen it evolve over the last twenty years? Yeah, that's a that's a great question um, because I do believe it's evolved, um, and and I I think that's easy to say, but I I think it's it's definitely gone from you know an, an era where. I'm thinking in the '90s and early 2000s, where um, there was such a there were so many problems to solve. Like we were, we were just blessed with problems to solve, and and not enough people to solve them. And 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 not and and I I think that applied to art. You know, to I mean, we were hiring people. If you knew how to run a computer, you were hired. And and part of that was like the the cost of the software and the hardware eclipsed the cost of the artist by so many degrees that it it really as a technologist it really was exciting because you could just you could you you it was it was it was kind of a, a, a an open field of of opportunity and and then I watched as and we all watched as you know, certainly the larger studios, but studios in general started shrinking their R&D budgets and their technology development budgets. And we saw technology gravitating into, you know, these these kind of, you know, holding tech companies like Foundry and Autodesk and Adobe, et cetera, where... You, you know, seeing things like Mari, for example, you know, and, and that, and Katana and, and Maya, et cetera, get, get kind of pulled up into these, these collective areas, um, these collective software companies and seeing less and less investment you know, from the individual studios, as I think the impression was that a lot of these problems were just being solved. And, and, and now it, instead of it being a competitive advantage that a studio has solved one problem, well, the whole industry solved the problem, so now it's no longer a competitive advantage. Why are we investing in this area? Let's let's just all you know share the the, the support burden and you know pay a software vendor for for the tech. Interesting. And, and, and so I I think that obviously has been running in parallel with the games industry 
and game related tech in, 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 you know, kind of next to each other, but distanced enough to where, you know, we were focused over here on, and, and I'm a lot of this, I'm talking about rendering technology, but we were focused on realism and, and like photorealism and, and, um, you know, accuracy and simulation because we, we weren't operating inside of any sort of compute budget. Whereas the game industry is, you know, operating in a 17 millisecond, you know, window of time that they have to shove everything down into. Um, and so the problems were very different. And, and then watching as I, I, I almost feel like we, we saw this convergence point or we, we see this impending convergence point um, where technology in both spaces is, is converging by definition. And, and that has, I think that's somewhat coincided very nicely or conveniently with the general lack of like the, the, the significant re reduction in investment as it relates to tech, specifically in visual effects. Mm. And so in a lot of ways, I think we're, we're, we're hoping for this new renaissance driven by technology that's not being funded by visual effects as an industry, but instead being funded by gaming you know, which, which, which has all these deep pockets. Right. Um, and, and, and by, you know, NVIDIA and others um, who are looking to, you know, seed the seed customer bases by, by saying here, we're going to, you know, like Epic with their virtual production, you know, efforts and all the investment that they've done in that. And um, NVIDIA with Omniverse to say like, look, here's all of this, uh, there's all this tech that like, we're just going to hire brilliant people and we're just going to put them in this, in a, in a, in a room together and say, here, build, build, build anything you want effectively. You know, at least this is my view of it. I'm, you know, I'm sure they have some direction, but the point being is like, when you get that many smart people, you can kind of tell them just build cool stuff and then we'll figure out what to do with it. Do you think um, that's really the case or do you think there's a motive behind this? Because there, the motive can't be to help visual effects because there's not that enough money in visual effects. No, no, it isn't. <laughs> Um, the, the, the motive, I mean, the motive for, for the, these companies, um, and, and I, I'm saying this with no judgment is to, is to sell their own product, make money. Uh, uh and well, but Epic is not selling anything. No, but it's, it's still a business development. Sure. Um, it's a business development movement. You know, they, they, they can say we're going to, we're, we're going to invest in this area of an industry that has potential or, and I'll pick on Epic for a second here, not, but I'll, I'll specifically call out like what's happened from with, with the, the volume walls and Mandalorian and the attention that's, that's brought towards that. It was very possible that there was never going to, that, that, that business, that line of business for Epic was always going to be a loss leader that they, they were never actually going to be profitable, you know, making money off of virtual production. It's too niche of a group, just, just like, you know, HP with their, you know, long lasting deals with say DreamWorks probably weren't particularly profitable, mm -hmm. but the optics, you know, from a marketing perspective, um, from a referenceability perspective for, 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 from a business development perspective in other industries to be able to point at that and say like, look how sexy that is. Like, like that's amazing. And Unreal Engine was used for that. Or I HP actually, I actually think it was all that. metaverse related. I think they built all of that stuff to build the metaverse, right? 
So yeah, because yes, no, and and I I think it's all of the above. Okay, you know, it's 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 not just about. I mean, at, at least what I saw at my time at Amazon, um, the 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 high level strategies are so. It's, it's to your point about metaverse, are so high level that internal to these companies, and certainly how it was for me at Amazon, if if you pitch a product that has the right words in it and that is generally aligned with with something as as vague as let's go after the metaverse then it gets greenlit it you know they'll say yeah go for it right and, and just like the hundred other projects that they are also that that others are running and sure. and the general idea is look if if five of them stick out of the hundred like it's worth it you know and we'd rather be ready to go in whatever area is is going to take off yeah then then bet big on one particular area and and be wrong. Yeah, I mean just based on you know what I saw their announcements at GDC this mm. week, you know with Fortnite and they're going all in on Fortnite as the metaverse now. They're making weight they're making yeah. no bones about yeah. it. And if they say okay, great, you've already made your movie inside of virtual reality with, you know, or or virtual production and it's already right. an unreal, so let's just bring that over to the metaverse. It just makes it easy for them, I think. You know, I, I, that's right. that's what it seems to me, which is an interesting idea in general. Um, okay, I, listen, I, I, wanna, I agree. I want to get I want to get to because I know you've been you've been thinking very hard and actually finding solutions in terms of machine learning and stuff like that. As you know, this is uh, both very exciting and very controversial part of, of what people talking about yes. uh, in the industry. What are your, what are your thoughts on it? First of all, and how are, how, how are you looking at this as a problem that, that you're trying to solve? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great question. It's one that I wrestle with daily. Um, it, it is it is very much a part of my daily job yeah. uh, to 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 figure out to to define our strategy and redefine it as as we need to because everything is changing so quickly yeah um you know i i try i try to find a i try to bring a healthy level of skepticism mainly because we've all seen technologies come and go. Some of them make a big splash. Some of them have staying power. Some of them are just a flash in the pan. And, and, and we get excited about all of them. And, and, and so I also don't believe that it, it, it's productive to sit back and just say any, anything new is, needs to get off my lawn. You know, like there's, there's no value in that either. So it, it really is a, I think it's good that I struggle with where constantly reevaluating, does this, does this really cool thing represent long-term potential or is this something that is close is, that we can actually use to, to make the movies and content that we make? Because that's ultimately like that, that as a hobbyist, it's all exciting. Like sure. as an individual, I'm like, man, this is like, this is cool. I'm, you know, I'm geeking out and clicking on the GitHub links and, you know, go. I, I, I subscribe to all the subreddits and I get, you know, I get in there and look and I'm like, man, that's, 
that's that's from a tech perspective that is impressive. Sure. But on the other hand, as a CTO of a studio, I I also need to be able to say how how does this tech affect or or can can affect our business in a positive light and by proxy how can we how can we use this to help our our studio customers um and so that that comes down to a lot of things that comes down to um uh you know similar to what I was saying earlier about wanting to keep up with what's going on in order to be able to strike the moment something is ready sure you know not not be caught on our back feet and so there's an R&D component there's a there's a keep you know staying abreast of of all the I mean, and it's hourly. I mean, we... Well, whatever happened at the beginning of the day is done by the end of the day. So. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and and again, I look at that as a symptom of, of, of problems that have yet to be solved. Right. Like that, that level of churn and attention doesn't happen when the, when the people in the know, the people that are following it, the people that are deeply ingrained in it, say we're done we figured it out we figured out how to do de-aging re-aging automatically um with full temporal cohesion and you know 4k resolution on commodity level graphics cards we did it move on to the next problem right right like i mean that's what we've seen in in, in the history of this industry and so when i see the, you know when i squint at the churn at, at, at what's what's coming across the screen and, and I see that we're, we're everything that's cool at the end of the day that's different at the beginning of the day is improvements on these same problems. It, it kind of tells me, okay, we're not there yet, but I am interested in, in one thing, and that's the velocity. Like, how, how does that mean we're a month away, a year away, five years away from getting to that place where we can actually compete, like, truly say, this workflow replaces the way we used to, we've always done things. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't need a full digital double pipeline. I don't need a full performance capture on set because all of that a hundred percent of the time can be replaced by this new technology. Mm. And until we're at that point, I, from a pipeline perspective, from a technology perspective, we now have to support both. Mm. And that, and that, that's where it's, that's where it starts to get a little uncomfortable because it's it's not until we we as an industry i think reach the point to where a technology has been fully disruptive or a process or a workflow has been fully disruptive where it can truly be widespread and 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 that as an industry we can we can kind of kick the dust off of our shoes from the old way and collectively jump into the into the new way um and and so a lot of this might sound, you know, really high level and and kind of meta, but but it is the way that I think about it because there, you know, there is so much going on and in, in ML outside of ML for me to be able to say, I'm going to I'm going to go and be an expert on it. I'm going to go and understand it so deeply that I'm going to be able to reliably predict that June of 2024 is the is the month that this particular you know that we replace performance capture or we replace the need for for scans of actors or what have you um sure so i i will say that you know in the in the near term what what i'm looking at is um 
the, the small steps, the utilities, you know, the 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 denoisers, the the frame interpolators, the, the upscalers, the upscalers, the you know the the automatic roto tools, the yep. the things that the things that we know um, pro- can provide value mm-hmm. um, for a relatively relatively low risk um, investment. Sure, you know, um, and and so it's. You know, as as a as a VFX studio, especially um, you know a, a, a somewhat scrappy one, mm-hmm. you know we're 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 we like to think that at Crafty Apes, at least, we like to think that we are um, investing in this far more than our competitors are, mm. and it is it is because we believe there is something there is something there, and, and we do believe that that. Um, We'd rather be a part of it than than watch from the sidelines. Yeah, you don't have time still... to watch from the sidelines. It's Google's, right, right, yeah, it's too right. Fast. And, and I and I think you actually you, you to your point earlier, you also you also can't be one foot in, right? You know, it it it, it really is an all or nothing all or nothing um, decision, which is you know I think nerve wracking <laughs> a little bit. Um, but but again, I I think we we were actually we were, we had a meeting earlier today and and it came up um, talking about ML and where where I don't want to see it go is you've probably seen every studio has like some flirt with some notion of like an auto comp tool you know it's like oh just drop in an auto comp tool and you know it's gonna automatically pull in all your elements and make your comp for you and match your blacks and 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 your grain and you know, you don't even need a compositor anymore. And, and they, they never work, you know, and, and when they do, oops, that's right. When they, when they do work, it's, um, it's only in very limited situations. Right. Um, and, and they're not art directable. They're not tunable. And, and I, I think, I think if I, if we see ML go that direction, it will be a shame. Yeah. I, I, I very much want to see, the world, the world that I want to see, where artists are using ML, and studios are using ML, is is as art directable tools, and 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 applications that still allow them to be part of that process, um, and still give us the the level of art directability and, and tunability that that we're accustomed to as an industry. Sure. I mean, there is a lot of tedious work that is done in official effects that if that can alleviate tedium, that yes. would be good. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, and that, that's again, I, where I, I, where I come back to utilities, um, and efficiency gains as it relates to like compute spend and like, can I, can I render it at 2k and then up res to 4k and have it be, you know, effectively as good as if I'd render 4k. Right. Like that that's a seventy five percent savings, you know, sure. and 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 that's that's something that no one's gonna complain about. Yeah. You know, there it it it's not gonna affect the final product, it's not gonna affect the, the um the artist iteration loop and, and process and so I, I think those are the things you know, the uncontentious bits that are that are also relatively low hanging fruit that um 
to me paved the way for the the more complex and and um technologies and use cases for ml that i think still have a long way to go you, know? <coughs> you mentioned earlier <coughs> excuse me uh, <coughs> you mentioned earlier um how studios <coughs> would have technology as a competitive advantage do you think we're back to that now um i i think i think the possibility exists you know i i i, I look at examples of of studios that get reputations for being able to do certain things yeah um you know like rhythm and hues and talking animals back in the day and there there's a there's a certain aspect of that that i i don't know that i don't know that any one studio is going to be the ml studio um no more than i think a studio would be the maya studio or any other technology you know as a brand but I think to the extent that studios can develop a reputation for certain um, services and functionality and, and they have proprietary technology that helps drive that, you know, Scanline's another example with, uh, with their, their water systems. It, it, I, I think, I think we might see more of that, like, mm. uh, but it is tough. It is tough to say because I think most of that has been driven by, capabilities like visually discernible capabilities you, you see a movie you know we, we'd watch a movie back in the early 2000s and if it had talking animals and they were really it, it was really well executed you knew it was a rhythm show sure you're like oh rhythm i'm sure rhythm did that if you saw a bunch of volumetric explosions and 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 or, or, or smoke and stuff back in early right. 2000 you knew it was dd and voxel bitch right exactly <laughs> or or any any movie where the antagonist was an ocean wave or something that was you know, like where there was, <laughs> yeah, there was water involved. You're like, Oh, there's scan line at it again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but that was, and, and, or, you know, or even, um, even, you know, army, like, uh, battle sequences with Weta yep. and massive, yep. like b before that went commercial, like you knew, you knew that, that, that they were involved there. And, but that, that was because, it was a visually discernible thing. It was new. You're like, oh, that's a that's a gag that I that only that, that I have never seen before, and now that I'm seeing it more often, I've associated it with the brand. But we've I I, I feel like we've over the years we've reached this saturation point mm. where we've seen we've it's like we've seen it all. Sure. So what is there? What is there that's left to see that that can be associated with a brand? with a studio as a result of proprietary technology, ML or otherwise, um, that's so recognizable that, that we, that we connect it to, to them strictly from, from what, what is actually being put on screen as opposed to I'm, I'm a, I'm an EP at NBC universal or Fox. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, and I see a certain type of shot, and I know this studio is going to give it to me cheaper, or this this studio is going to execute it the best with the fewest amount of notes and the fewest amount of iterations, mm -hmm. um, because they have proprietary technology. And I, and I feel like it's going to be more of that. It's going to be studios studios up up leveling their ability to execute efficiently 
um, more rapidly in the sense that with fewer notes and, and, you know, in, in ways that just improve on, on, on the old and and they're the ones that are going to rise to the top. Now I actually, you know, real quick before we go, because I I mean, I was just curious about your thoughts on this. You know, we've, we've seen a lot of the same thing for a long time recently in in the film industry. Right. And not to say that it's bad or good. It's just all looks the same. Right. Because everyone has, as you mentioned, all problems have generally been solved under that lens, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so, like, when you suddenly see something like everything everywhere all at once, right, which is solved by people yeah. who are not those guys, right, and it looks completely different, you're like, what the hell is this? I don't know what happened. And then you realize it's yeah. done at a completely different level. That's very interesting because suddenly it looks like something you hadn't seen before. Do you think – that we are going to start to see things we've never seen before a lot more because of what people are going to discover with ML tools. <laughs> yes. And I, it hadn't occurred to me in that light, but yes. And, and, and it reminds me one of, one of the first moments of like hope that I had in that regard as in, in was the spider verse films. Oh yeah. Like, Perfect. like looking at that and going like they, they broke the mold. Yeah. They, they really said, let, let's not do just yet another, you know, full CG, uh, you know, 3d looking film and with, with some shader tricks, let's, let's create a new aesthetic, a new visual vocabulary. Yeah. And, and I, I saw that. Well, I, I, I hoped because that was really the first time that that had happened in a long time. I had hoped that it represented a shift, and I and I think it has. I I mean we've we've seen more films come out with, you know, kind of that NPR you know, look, um, and so. I guess my I guess where I go back to is. Does the does the creative flexibility that animation provides, provides make it more likely for us to see what you're describing happen there more so than in the visual effects realm. Sure. Where, where we're still, it at least feels like we're much more confined to the photo, the, the rules of reality and, and photorealism and feasibility in, in, in that sense. I think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you and I talked about the early, early, you know, late two nineties and early two thousands. I mean, that was when everything was new and we're all trying to solve things. And I think we got kind of comfortable in that seat for a little yes. while. Right. And then, you, and then you you brought up, you brought up Spider-Verse, but I mean, all honestly speaking, that's actually a lot of it is Alberto Miago. Right. And it was Alberto Miago's he was not ultimately part of the end of the Spider-Verse, but he's the one who started it and who did some of those things. And he did a lot of that stuff and loved Death and Robots. And to me, when I was looking, I was yes. like, everyone else is doing something and Alberto's doing something else. And somehow it's we're all confused as to what the hell just happened. When <laughs> and it but was, we like it. Yeah, we love but it. We like it. We love it. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. And and yeah, and I, I I, I think that's great. Like your reference to love, death and robots is another great example. Like I, I, I love that as it, it reminds me of the old, like, you know, animation show of shows type thing or, you know, or, or just like television theaters. and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's like have an opportunity for us to, as an industry to experiment with what's possible yeah. and break out of the molds, break out of just this purely 
you know, pipeline-based commercial kind of like, let's just crank through shots, and as long as they all look the same as the last movie, then, you know, everyone will be happy. Um, I, 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 like, I think it's fantastic, and I, um, I, I don't know how to encourage more of that, um, but I could absolutely see ML influence that. Yeah, you know, I mean, hopefully we get out of, hopefully we get out of this like current state of ML where it's just amorphous, you know, scary thing, uh, <laughs> random, take yeah, your job yeah, away. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and give me. Well, I, I'm talking. Yes, there's that, but <laughs> but also visually, like like all of the, you know, there was a music video that someone posted on um on 3D Pro, I think it might have been. Okay, and and it was beautiful, but. You know, it, 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 it was just embracing the aesthetic, the ML aesthetic, as opposed to saying, hey, how do we make ML, you know, how do we use it as a tool to achieve what we couldn't achieve before? Right. <clears throat> um, as opposed to saying, let's just make the things that the this school makes. spits out. It reminds me, I remember the first, when I when I was in architecture school at Rice and, and mm -hmm. we had... Uh, we had Wavefront at the time. We had Alias Wavefront on an mm -hmm. SGI, and I was one of my professors really wanted help. He was going to pay me to bring his project into Wavefront for some reason, right? And so I'm right. doing. And Wavefront's default color was this kind of a weird blue color. I don't know if you remember that. That was a kind of a kind of like a sky blue color. That was their default color yeah. for an object, yeah. right? And right. he's sort of like a totally obsessed about the default color that the program gave. And it's like, this is the color is so started going on this whole tangent. It's like, dude, that's the default color of the program. <laughs> Just, you should go beyond that. Like make your own color. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just kind of ridiculous. So. <laughs> yeah. It, I don't know. It's, it, it kind of reminds me of early computer art. Yeah. Where, where, where it was totally limited. Mind's by... eye stuff. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. It was it was just completely limited by what was possible at the time, and and it was like, oh, computers can make spheres and 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 pyramids and and, and checkerboards, you know, <laughs> sinusoidal, you know, uh, uh, ground planes. Uh, so we're just going to make a bunch of art that does that, you know, and and, and everyone's like, this is beautiful, and we're like, yeah, but it's 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 it all looks the same because that's all anyone can do at the moment right. <laughs> and and I, and I think we're kind of in that space with ml at least on the animated front sure like like the the, the single the still image the still image side of it is absolutely bonkers right i mean like what what's what what is able to come out of a, of a model uh in terms of still image is just um how far that's come is in just, just like six months Oh yeah, yeah. It, it's it's really incredible. Yeah. But I, you know, coming coming from this industry, I, I to me, we I I I think in a temporal space sure. when it comes to graphics. Yep. Like everything I look at, I'm like, you know, how how's that going to work with time sample data? How's that going to work with motion blur? How's that going to hold up? You know, with um, transparency and reflection and refraction deep, over deep time. Color. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all of it. Yeah. You know, and and I, and I don't think I'm being a, a naysayer or a skeptic or a cynic in that. I'm just looking at it from the perspective of yeah. we make movies. Yep. Literally, it's in the name. They move. Yep. Like we 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 need we need to figure that out. And so I, I get less excited than most about a lot of the ML stuff because I, I'm waiting to see that. And I, and I think a lot of people in our industry are. Sure. They, they, I'm not the only one that brings it up. Um, 
but to me that that will represent the the kind of aha moment um from a you know from a production like a practical production perspective yeah yeah that makes sense uh well, listen, it's going a little <laughs> – I don't think it take up too much more time. I actually yeah. have to – the reason I had to ask you to go a little early is I'm actually going to have to do a martini giant thing after this. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so that's not happening that. But, uh, but I really appreciate this. Listen, I, I'm very excited about what you guys are doing. It's really cool that I'm able to talk to like a CTO – uh, at a really great visual effects company. And we're not just geeking out about technology. We're talking about the implication of the art and the creativity. So it's really refreshing yeah. to hear that perspective uh, from, from, from your point of view. Uh, is there anything that we can look forward to that's, we can, you know, in terms of what's going on at Crafty and what's going on? Obviously, you said uh, you guys are trying to focus a little bit more on ML, but is there anything we can look forward to to seeing what you guys are up to? Um. Not, not that I think we're in a position to announce right now. Um, you know, we 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 didn't get into more of the cloud stuff, but you know, we we yes. are um, we are investing heavily in that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you know, with 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 my background with AWS, I think it was you know pretty much a foregone conclusion that we would at least investigate that as a possibility. Just is you know, cloud um, studio in the cloud architectures and. Um, global architectures, et cetera. Um, uh, so, so I, I think you're more like you're, you're likely to hear some announcements around that soon. Mm-hmm. Um, on the ML front, it's it's only tough to say because it's tough to predict any of it. Uh, and and so, you know, I think I w- I will be very. My expectations is that as soon as something is ready and 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 is technology that we can utilize um, to, to to do what we do to make content to make visual effects, um, we will we will use it. And and again, we we already use ML throughout our production pipeline sure. um, anyway. But what I think the last you know six months represents for us that 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 is a is a pivot is our our level of investment and, and leaning into that um, to not just be the recipients of whatever it is that the industry decides to grace us with in terms of technology, but to also help drive it and, um, you know, innovate. And I, I think that will, it remains to be seen what that yields, but I, I am excited about it. And I think, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, for someone who's a cynic to be excited about it, I feel like there's, I feel like there's a little bit of credibility. Everyone's excited, but sure. I, I can, I've, I'm begrudgingly excited. And I think that, um, you know, I think that should, should lend some confidence. I think it's interesting that people that I have talked to, the ones that are the most non-fearful of it are the ones that have been doing it for a couple of years. <laughs> you know? Right. You know, I mean, they know. They know. They, know. they understand yeah. it, what it is. They understand what it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, and I agree. I think the, the more that I learn about it, the more, um, the more that I understand again, what it is and what it isn't, uh, the more I've been able to think of it as an engineer Sure. and, and, and that as opposed to, you know, looking at it from the outside going like, ah, I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat as everyone else. I don't understand how it works or why it does what it does. And, and, and that, you know, that makes it difficult to predict. And so. The, the it is a mindset shift, you know, thinking about problems in terms of data sets and training and model refinement and um 
you know, things of that nature. It, it is a, it is a, a mental shift, but I, but I think it's still very much an engineering one. Sure. And, and so I think it's just a matter of time before, you know, just like any other technology that we've used over the years to, to make movies and, and, you know, content, we'll see a collective shift of, of, or, or spread of understanding and, and, and you'll get supervisors, et cetera, who will look at a problem and or look at a show or look at a shot and say, Oh, you know what? Like, I think we can solve this with ML. Right. Let's, let's just, you know, just like we would look at it, you know, 20 years ago, we'd be like, Oh, you know what? We can solve this with, with ray tracing. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, it's funny it's, because there were people that were very upset when people started introducing ray tracing to yes, the pipeline. Yes. Because they were like, this is going to take away my job as a shader writer. This is going to take it out. Totally. And they were hating shade. And it was like, like, no, it's like, no, we'll just simulate everything. It's like, but we take away all the creativity of lighting by ray tracing totally. it. Totally. And people were very no, upset. No, I, I, you know, I was at Imageworks um, in the in the few years after the the switch from RenderMan to, to Arnold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there and, right at that and, start. I was still using RenderMan then. And I vowed to myself, yeah. I will never render a shadow map ever again. <laughs> right, right. I mean, and 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 then there was, um, I, I was literally, I was actually at DreamWorks um, during the shift from Moonlight to Moonray. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and again, similar things, you know, um, and, and from like uh, Katana as a compositor to Nuke as a compositor. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, just anytime that you introduce paradigm shifts and people who, who, place value in their ability to make tools work. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, you take away their tools, you take away their tech and you give them new stuff. You know, it, it's scary. It, it really is scary. And, and uh, you know, I, I think that that's, there's something to be learned there as well in, in terms of um, managing technology rollouts. And I think we can look back at that with ML and say, you know, this, this isn't, um, yes, this is new tech, but this is not a new situation. You know, we, we have been in these situations before where disruptive technology has threatened or, or made feel, people feel as though that their livelihoods are at stake. Um, and I think there are right ways to go about that and there are wrong ways or, or less ideal ways. And I think it's important for us as an industry to, to be cognizant of, of that, like recognize that we still need to move forward, but we need to do it in a way that, you know, is respectful and you know, takes care of us as an industry, um, you know, and, and the people that are in it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, well, John, listen, thank you so much for do, being on this. I think, I mean, it was a great yeah. conversation with you. I really appreciate it. And, you know, good luck with everything going on over at Crafty. I mean, I'm sure you guys are going to do amazing work as you always have. Uh, and it's just really cool to hear, you know, hear your background and how that's worked for you. Thanks, Chris. No, this is great. I like, like I said, when you messaged me, it's a long time coming. I've been looking forward to, to, to being on the, on your show. So thanks for inviting me, and um, well, I'm sure we'll talk soon. 